0: You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. hey it's
2: scott lips and welcome back to yet another episode of spin magazine presents lip service such an exciting show today my chat with co-founder of fleetwood mac 120 million records rock and roll hall of fame mr mick fleetwood is here with anthony boza my friend and eight times new york times bestselling author who actually wrote mick's book play on excited we had a great conversation we talked all things fleetwood mac We talked about Peter Green, the tribute CDs, the tour that hopefully will eventually happen, the lineup. We even touched on Lindsey Buckingham. Such an exciting conversation. It was incredible. So happy to have these guys here. If you like the show, please make sure you rate the show, review the show. The show is available mostly every Tuesday. We appreciate you tuning in. And coming up in just a moment, Mick Fleetwood and Anthony Boza.
3: You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips.
2: Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's Boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it.
1: You're
0: listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott
2: Lips and welcome back to Spin Magazine Presents Lip Service. I'm here with the incredible Mick Fleetwood, Anthony Boza. You guys are friends for years. Actually, Anthony, you wrote the book to play I on. Did. So I, I'm excited to have to be on the show with you guys. And, and when did you guys actually meet?
1: Wow. Lord.
3: Yeah, this is... Uh... <laughs> That's a tough one. A time ago, I met, uh, met you, Anthony, through uh, Carl, right. a mutual yes. friend. I used to be my manager, but uh, that has to be 15 a- years yeah. ago. It's huh? a
1: while. I mean, it has to be like, goodness, ah. at least 10, 10, 12 years ago, at least. Because we met before we even did the book. Correct. Uh, I met you, you know, with, with Carl, and it That's started right. there. Yeah, and then Mick, you know, decided he wanted to do it, and um, and then we started working on the book. I mean, that was like two thousand thirteen, I think, around there.
2: And Mick, so had you have... actually had you read some of Anthony's books before this, or it was just jumping not, in? Long not long. in
3: total, but Carl Carl was uh, very familiar with with the work that he'd done, and I'd, I'd certainly read short vignettes of, of things that he'd done, and and we just hit it off straight away, and and was obviously aware that he'd done similar things in terms of putting things together with other people, not only on his, his own cognizance, but so it just worked out. Um, and re- really the coming together of it was, felt very, very natural. And I sort of almost felt like I knew him because Carl went off to talk about him. got said, you gotta meet up, just not necessarily to do what we ended up doing. So it was sort of a, a really great segue. Yeah, it's
2: funny. I I actually played in a band with um, Anthony's manager, Sean Daly. Uh, We both played in Courtney Love's band together. So that's actually how I met Anthony. And And I'm a drummer, too. I don't know if you know, but uh, (laughs) I've been been a drummer all my life. So it's it's great to be here with you. And and I'm excited to chop it up with both of you guys and get into it. And uh, there's some great stories in the book. If you don't mind, Mick, just take us back to the beginning, how you started playing drums, the whole (laughs) process. I know you moved around a lot as a kid because your dad was in the military, I believe.
3: Correct. Um, Well, how did I literally get into wanting to play drums thing? Yeah. Uh, uh, The only sort of umbilical I can think about, uh, which, if nothing else, is is a fairly good story, but I I think it's more true than not. uh, Mum used to do the cleaning, and and when we were overseas, I always remember she had the radio on, the BBC, (laughs) you know, home service or whatever. And I often would be just hanging out with mum as a young creature. And I started uh, hitting leather furniture and stuff while she was listening to music. She used to, uh, she would never would have admitted it, but she actually was really quite a good sing-along, karaoke-esque singer. And she would make up songs of her own, uh, only with vocals because she never played an instrument. And I remember playing uh, around just doing uh, my version of dancing, I suppose, on on furniture. And I think that's really how it started. And then it just morphed later on into uh, quiet fascination with with music, I suppose. No one in the family was an exponent of. Uh, It wasn't like mum was sitting playing the piano in the living room or... Choir practice on Sundays at the church. I've had none of that, but um, she always loved music, and that started the whole thing off. And also reminds me: I, I talk to as you, we all do on this call, talk to people that that sort of do what we do, and then they play it down and say, "Well, I, I, I can't this, I can't that." And Anthony knows this type of dynamic with me, because all too often. And I catch myself going, but how great is it to be an appreciator? To to love just listening right. to music. Yeah.
2: yeah. I yeah. think
3: that's I think that's probably the the seed was sown by just the fact that I loved maybe just watching mom enjoying herself and found a way to sort of participate on some sort of basic hitting hitting furniture or something.
2: But your so, dad was an amateur drummer, right? Wasn't he? Didn't he kind of he, he
3: actually, well, in a way, he was, but that too was unknown to me. Right. Um, when, but he he used, to, I do remember, he used to play on bottles with and glasses with different levels of water and stuff. So, and then he would always play. Not that we had any money in the family, but he would play on pocket change. I remember in his pocket,
2: hmm.
3: <laughs> and it would always be of military sort of <laughs> um, So he
2: was, he was actually a drummer without a drum set is what you're saying
3: <laughs> Correct and then and then, years later so I, truly I think that was the extent that I ever knew about but when my father passed away my mother gave me um, and I think the picture's in, in the book probably uh, in one of the books um, and it was a picture of my father in the war in Scotland, where he was posted behind a drum kit with uh, his dog that used to fly with him through the whole Second World War, pretty much.
2: Incredible.
3: Uh, A wild, crazy young poodle that used to sit sit on the plane and was a good luck charm. They snuck it on the plane almost uh, almost all the time. And it was him playing snare drum behind a drum kit with a bagpipe player in a pub. So he did actually apparently play drums a little bit and I never ever he never told me wow, never, never said, oh, and I don't think it happened that often but he was obviously partial to tapping on things which <laughs> would in truth be how I started and I actually just never stopped so
2: but they were encouraging because they, I believe they bought you a drum set right so obviously they yeah. wanted you to encourage this musical talent that you were soon to find out that you had right
3: well, uh, whatever it was, it was uh, uh, about the only thing that was available. So whether it was talent, <laughs> we're, we're not quite sure, but no, point taken. And and they were, um, again, I've spoken with Anthony so much about that element of being encouraged, whether it happened to have been the fact that to play drums or something else. I, I, I lucked out. I had really great parents that just were poetically connected to things that were showing themselves emotionally when maybe other things in in the academic world for me were pretty much a dead end. So, yeah, I was really lucky in that respect. And they did. They bought bought me a drum kit and sent me off to London when I eventually... I left school when I was about 14 and a half, and I had a a little drum kit that they went off with the dream. I mean, God knows what they were thinking. (laughs) Right.
2: I love the story. I believe the drum kit was like on the end of the train, right? And it was like covered in blankets or it's crazy yeah. because I mean, all, I mean, obviously I take my drums with me here and there now in cases, but I can't imagine throwing them on the back of a train in a blanket uh, back, you know, many years ago and praying that they'd be okay when they arrived. Right.
3: Yeah. And and uh, no, you're, you're remembering something you must've uh, read. I'm sure. Cause my father wrote lovely, I mean, or poetry, whatever. One wants to call it. And that <clears throat> that was called a, uh I think it was Rockstar. And it was sort of long after the fact. But but it was all about sending me off with a drum kit wrapped wrapped in a blanket. Yeah. This funny little boy, basically a boy, off to London with a, a pipe dream to uh I know I can do it. And luckily someone knocked on the door heard, heard me playing the drums. Yeah, down the street
2: yeah Anthony, i'm sure sure you'd agree at 15 most parents wouldn't uh send you off into the wilderness and say, hey go be a rock star see you later i moved out to la when i was 16 to do the same but this is many years later and even then i think my parents were kind of freaking out so (laughs) in doing the research for the book anthony i'm sure you had some great stories that mick told you about this time period of his childhood and and leading up to him moving up to london do you remember some of the stories there
1: um, I mean, the stuff I loved hearing was when, you know, he did get to London and his very evocative description of of the drums being, I think it was above a garage or was it your sister's, literally the sister, I think. Yeah. And then um, the drums were in the garage and, you know, Mick is quite a tall fellow. So I was just <laughs> picturing him in this sort of dusty attic space, you know, fitting in there with the kid and everything. Um and and then someone down the street heard you playing who was a guitarist and then they they really kind of it's really cool to think about London at that time and literally how organically that that happened you know
0: Um, yeah yeah. Mick I
2: was gonna say it's pretty incredible that you actually had like Peter actually knocked on the garage door hey are you playing you know you a drummer in there I mean that usually doesn't happen that way career paths don't usually start off in that way right
3: no but it was uh he lived actually next door it was a um, he was a keyboard player, actually, Peter Bardens. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still very connected to his daughter, uh, uh, my, my goddaughter, Tanula, who's alive and well and lives in London and is really talented like her father was. But he uh, he literally he- was hearing these drums banging away down down And we lived in a cul-de-sac, so you, it, it must have been like living hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Next door, I think he probably said, I better go and like, either shut him up or or find out whether he's in a third or something. And he was in a, a little band. And yeah, it literally was a knock on the door. And I'd never ever played with anybody in my life.
2: Incredible. Incredible. I'd only played
3: played along with records. One time at a school dance, I I got up on the, on the drum kit and played. That's all I remember in terms of people playing. And uh, that evening, I was playing in the local youth club <laughs> in a band he was pretending to manage.
2: <laughs> right. He looked like a manager at the time, right?
3: Well, he had had a worn out mohair suit. Right. <laughs> Years later, we would, we would always joke about that, you know, I don't think it was even his suit.
2: But
3: <laughs> he, he put it on and knocked on the door and said, uh, you know, I hear, hear you're a drummer and I happen to live next door to you, and uh, would you like to come play? I have this band that I ma- that I manage. Right. It was all hogwash, really. But
2: <laughs> what were you listening to at that time? Obviously, the blues, you know, is ingrained in your soul, and that's it's actually, I guess, that's kind of where it all started for you. But what were you listening to at that time? Like what blues artists were you listening to? What were your first memories of music for you, and, and what got you into it?
3: Well. Uh, it wasn't, strictly speaking, I mean, inadvertently, I think it, 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 it was, because early rock and roll is basically, you know where that comes from. Um, but I, I was more conversant with an English band called uh, Cliff Richards and the Shadows,
2: sure.
3: which was basically, for want of a better description, anyone that knows the Benchers, which was a very famous instrumental band here in the United States for, uh, back in the day, and so I played a lot of, of English rock and roll. Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers was for real. And then there were, there were lookalike English artists like Cliff Richard, who's sort of our Elvis Presley. Yeah. Um, and, and the Shadows were phenomenal. They, uh, they just retired not that long ago, actually. I went to see them probably about nine years ago. Their last world tour. They were amazing. Um, in Australia just phenomenal so I used to I used to play along with all of those songs which coincidentally by the luck of the draw was pretty much pretty much what this band was playing (laughs) which was a huge help it probably got got me the gig before they threw me out the door but (laughs) uh so I had blundered into listening inadvertently at boarding school uh, to uh, Radio Luxembourg. And back in those days, it would be, you have to realize a lot of the American GIs were African-American, Black black uh, American dudes and girls, mostly dudes, that uh, were on service in Germany and in fact still are. And so the, they played a, a whole load of, of great music, no doubt music that everyone was going to enjoy there in the forces. Sure. And I... There was a, a little uh, crystal radio that we used to listen on some one of the lucky boys that probably the parents had a fair amount of money or something but they, they work up with no batteries it 's just one little headphone, totally not supposed to have it in in, in school in boarding school but I, that was the treat that you would say could i could I listen tonight yeah yeah, and often as it turned out, it was Radio Luxembourg or... All- <laughs> You know, like a a ham radio operator asking for help, and no one came.
2: (laughs) That was sort of your first memories of listening to music.
3: Yeah, and and I think truly a lot of a lot of it uh, was really great R and B and and some Chuck Berry and stuff like that. And it wasn't really until the knock after the knock on the door that I truly was introduced through Peter. And then later, Peter Peter Green, I'm sure we'll touch on talking about. Of course. Peter, no doubt. Uh, well, that was the, the education. These guys were already way into, I remember Peter Barden's playing Nina Simone, like the second day I met him, uh, and listening to Lenny Bruce. So you could tell that they were sort of ahead of the game. And I became part of, of that as my education v- very quickly, um, and which led me to, to being more, more cognizant about uh, American blues and the auto- authentic part of, of where all our early rock and roll had come from, which by the time a lot of it got to England, did. You know, they, some of them were great. You know? Yeah, of course. So, some of the, the English rock and rollers, when you really look at it, are, are pretty watered down. Uh, but doing their best, which is what, in truth, what we started doing. We did our best and, and I think not only lucked out with the amount of talent that was in the band, especially coming from the front line with uh, Peter Green and, and Danny and, and Jeremy Spencer and having a, a great rhythm section, which turned out to be me and John McVie, but without the front line and, and the real delivery of what was taking place created the essence it. and I don't know whether it was luck or channeling or whatever it was but it, in retrospect I have to say that a bunch of very young white skinny <laughs> English dudes somehow plugged in in a major way to uh, the, the, the heroes you know and pulled pulled it together in a way that I think was authentic mm. uh, upon what I've always been able to go back and listen to and and, and care for and be really um, amazed that we were able to do that and and at the level that we did it. So. I mean, there's nothing worse than the bad blues band either. But. Good question. Well,
2: it's interesting too because <laughs> yeah, you were only 15 yeah. at that point, right?
3: I uh, the time I joined Fleetwood Mac, it was pro- I was probably about. 18 I suppose. Okay
2: but before then I mean you start getting into blues you meet John McPhee oh, yeah. and Peter Green yeah. and, you were, and you were literally 15 years old playing the blues the music Correct. of 60 year olds right so it's uh, you don't have right. the life experience at 15 that you do when you're 60 so it's interesting that these kids were like you said essentially playing older music right and, and just emulating, emulating
3: emulating 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 right. upon upon really plugging into uh, a friendship and, and and the music uh, with with Peter Green, uh, is that you know for whatever reason, which was a, a hell of a drag, and I didn't ever really know that until much later, you know, somewhat later on, that he was, as a kid, was a young Jewish kid in the East End of London, had the, the in his mind the next best, best thing to really not having a good time, yeah. Uh, so he he had an empathy with being shoved down Mm. we had an empathy with the lineage of where as we know a lot of of gospel and blues comes from it's it's really a crying out uh, that i i want to be heard and also while i'm doing it somehow in the hell that i'm living in i'm i'm gonna retain my dignity through my music and without getting too serious about it that's sort of my understanding and, and I had none of that you know I had you know we could talk for three days about what a great childhood I had and and how blessed I was. Yeah. Peter had a great family but he didn't have good memories of his childhood mm-hmm. so he, he was a candidate where I think the a lot of the, the, the intrinsic sadness and the depth to which, whatever went in and then came out through Peter's playing is to be understood that it sadly no doubt had something to do with elements of damage as, as a young chap.
2: Yeah, no question.
3: We were truly like the odd couple. Cause I, I had none of that. And yet <laughs> I had a huge empathy with it for, for some reason at, at school, I always used to get into trouble like standing up for people who, who were being blamed, and a lot of the time they should they should have been. But Then you would find out, you know, you go right. Like, and I learned at boarding school to stand up for people. I'm just saying that's part of probably why I was attracted to, uh, and I still am to some fault, which is sort of uh, borderline. You have got to watch out; you're you're not creeping into a, sort of a form of pleasant narcissism where you think you can fix everything sure and i think that was my relationship with with peter and it and it just turned out where we were in london one of one of you were just talking about what was going on in london was uh, and and the lack of living with with my sister and her husband john uh they were in the middle of of not the musical world, but but London, when Bidel right. Sassoon and Mary Quant and all these fashion, David Hockney, who became such a famous, lovely, successful painter, is still with us. I think he lives in L.A. All of these people were around where I lived.
2: George Harrison, right?
3: Not, not, not at that point, but later on. Later on, yeah. When I started going out with Jenny because, and Patty uh Patty Boyd, uh yeah, I've been in those days a, a very famous model. And Jenny was <laughs> okay. just leaving school. So that whole that whole world unfolded immediately I got off that train. Mm, incredible. Incredible. And I I'd had a, a pipe dream when I used to uh, run away from school and stuff. I just didn't want to be there. It wasn't that I was a wuss. It was just like I just The whole thing repulsed me. And it was mainly because I could never learn. I had dyslexic things that no one understood. And I used to go and stay with Sally when she was an art student in London. And she would take me out to coffee bars in Chelsea. And and I'd sit there, a little kid, on the way, you know, one night with her. And then I'm put on another train to a boarding school. And I always remember, like, how cool it was, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know what it was. And they, in their flat, they were playing John Coltrane and stuff. And I had no idea, but I found, it was around Sally's house many years ago, and found the, the, the record player and a whole load of, and she yeah, said, yeah, it's stuff we used to play, like down in the basement when you came and stayed. And she took me out to a beautiful, famous, artsy place. I forget the name of it. Was in, a, of course, in another basement. Everyone hides in basements when they're the cool. <laughs> and they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I, did, I, I think it's either a complete fantasy and a lie, but, but I, I have a memory of, of uh, they all used to wear these black sweaters. You know, these well, everything was black, black and black sweaters and tight jeans. So. Beanie, yeah. 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 <laughs> I remember seeing this this. I'm sure a young lady sitting on a stool at the bar and she was smoking a cheroot. Just, just and I I had no right to even be thinking how cool she looked. That was like <laughs> 10 years old, you know. <laughs> so in a way, I went back to London with this whole deep-rooted fantasy from all of my trips that I would take through London. I think truly that's where some of my yen to get back. To London came from and I'm sure you guys discuss this in the book Anthony but because you're maybe because
2: you weren't so into school make at a young age you actually knew at like 12 or 13 you know I'm going to be a drummer in a rock band this is what I want to do which usually people don't have that premonition at such a young age so it's incredible that you like manifested it and you made it happen and um, I do want to take it back a minute like how did you actually meet Peter Green I know you guys discuss this in the book Anthony I imagine
3: yeah Mick, take it away.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: so this is this is like one of those panel games, and they go like, "Can you remember?" <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, I was joking with my girlfriend, and uh, before I came to do the to the uh, the show with this all, and just going over. Well, you're going to be asked a whole load of questions from the 70s. So I jokingly turned around and I said, well, I know the answer. I said, I don't remember any of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all of us. None of us remember.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's all a blur. Everything's so a blur.
3: Meeting Peter uh, would have been we were looking for a guitar player unbeknownst us at that point, I do believe could be wrong, that he'd had a very very short excursion playing with john bell's blues breakers right. when you go uh, the rhythm section when eric uh went off to north africa i think i always like i don't know so but there's always the, the, the cool thing to do is i'm going to go to north africa and you know <laughs> smoke, smoke hash or something. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I know that brian jones did that you know we, i always thought it was so romantic and, and of course little did i know that, that when brian went there he he was truly just not to get off track here was a true musical explorer yeah I could tell that by the the amount of instruments he would just pick up so I, I i'm probably thinking that he spent time in the mountains playing you know one string sarods or something <laughs> sitars mm-hmm. and With real intent you know yeah. <laughs> uh, so eric disappeared then came back and asked for his job back uh and <laughs> And that was, and at that time, uh, he Peter had been told by the same agent we all used to work for, the Gunnell Brothers, said that uh, our band, uh, the Peter Bees, was looking for a guitar player. And he turned up, and it 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 could have been the biggest mistake I ever made, probably. But in in all candour, so Peter walks in, and I remember like, not very tall, had. Big old chops going down. Look, He looked like something out of the gangs of New York, you know, <laughs> film, just with a yeah. duffel coat on, pumps, pair of jeans, which was almost getting to be a uniform in those days. And and his Les Paul, the case, that looked like could have been a machine gun Kelly or something walking <laughs> in. Right. You've got to understand, all, all the players would walk around and they would never leave their instruments. You know right, that. Right, right. That. Us yeah. drummers couldn't really do that, but yeah. Yeah. the guitar players, like, no, that that guitar is coming to bed with me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you sleep with your instruments. <laughs> no one's going to be lifting that one. You know, <laughs> it was usually the only one that that you had. But yeah. uh, so he walked in, plugged in, and we were playing a lot of uh, instrumental stuff, like Wade in the Water and. Jimmy McGriff and funny reggae things. And we were basically an instrumental band and did a little bit of Moe's Allison stuff that Peter Peter Barden's managed to sing. And he was the, a really cool uh, organ, Hammond organ player. And it was sort of our version of, of a band in England that Rod Stewart was in uh, called uh, the Oblivion Express, I think. Julie hmm. Driscoll. Long uh, John Baldry Rod Stewart and Brian Auger on, on, on an organ it was a great band a really really great band and we were we then morphed into a sort of copycat version of that with Rod uh, after he left uh, that band so anyhow he walks in, plugs in and we're playing like a lot of Booker T and stuff like that and the bass player Dave Ambrose and me, upon sitting down with Peter, who said, well, what do you think? And both of us said, hes I don't think he's good enough. <laughs> 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 and and much to Peter's credit, he said, I, I said, he doesn't play much. <laughs> is he going to be able to do all the, the backing stuff we're going to have to do for for people and 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 is he adept is he adept enough yeah and what didn't hit me was the essence of peter ironically and and peter vetoed it and said you're wrong both of you this guy's the real stuff Mm. And, and and i said well he sounds great and and it's it sounds haunting and he stays on one note for you know half an hour. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> Little did I know.
3: How great he was, yeah. David Gilmore. Years later, you go like, hmm. You know, they all they were people who got it. You yeah. know, yeah. they got, they got the simple way of of projecting the emotion. Anyhow, he got the gig, and within a within a week, I re- I was literally fawning over his playing and, and going like, oh, my God, what if, <laughs> what if he'd been outvoted? And I would have never played with him, never formed a band with him. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about that. <laughs> uh, and that would have been the end of that. And and it was a lesson learned because he's quite, uh, without any shadow of a doubt, my, my most favorite guitar player.
2: Definitely.
3: You know, yeah. so, <laughs> through through anything. And, you know, if you shove me in a corner, i said, say, you have to pick because I've been blessed with playing with incredible guitar players. Uh, but I think the standard, one way or another, although they've all been very different, I think I learned a lesson uh, that anyone who's been in, in, come through the ranks of Fleetwood Mac, and there have been several, I think, I like to think it's because I really listened to who they are. They're sure. not, if you look at the catalog of Fleetwood Mac, they're not em- emulators. They all come with their own goods. No you know? question. And Lindsay couldn't be any more different and yet than Peter, but they were both unique. Definitely, definitely. And they, they spoke their own language. They spoke their own specificity to to a language which was super powerful over and above the music they were actually playing. So that was the last, could have been a catastrophic mistake. It a very (laughs) short story.
2: (laughs) Anthony, when you worked on the book with Nick, a lot of the great stories about the early years of Fleetwood Mac, what are some of your recollections that you guys talked about and some of the, the great stories early on
1: before obviously Lindsay and Stevie joined the band um I mean I was fascinated I, I asked him millions of questions just about what we're already talking about like London at that time um you know all those famous blues clubs and rock clubs that you hear about uh I was just like you know what did it look like what did it smell like I just wanted to know I was tried to like you know, go back through time through mixed eyes. So that, that whole area I find fascinating is obviously so culturally relevant and such a like, you know, pregnant moment in culture too, because of what came out of that musically and the Beatles and everything like that stuff. Um, That I love all of his, you know, the sort of ragtag blues band in a van kind of stuff that he had going on. Um, There's some funny stuff involving, what was the, was it betty there's there was there was a large uh there's a it there was a rubber um, what's what's that madge. was it madge is that the thing but, of, the oh you know, no you know, <laughs> i think i know what you're talking about but go ahead <laughs> just that. Dildo. yeah the big black dildo on the drums you know yeah. um they were just fun I, those are great <laughs> stories you know just up and back i, I think we just talked about sort of a typical you know tour and packing it all in a van and, and driving up like all those stories never get old um, for me so that stuff's great I mean there's just so much also like looking at all of the some of the rosters of the other bands that you were playing with at certain times yeah. is fantastic and yeah, think, ca- you know, casually mentioned Rod Stewart and you know,
2: like people these are like iconic you know iconic yeah bands. if you look
1: at some of the you know the gigs that you know Early gigs that they played on uh, festivals and stuff. It's it's pretty unbelievable, and and to think that Mick was still you know nineteen years old, which is incredible. Um, it's Definitely. amazing. It's amazing. So I guess you know that that stuff. I, I think I was probably I was fanboying out about all that because I just wanted to know so badly <laughs> what that was like.
2: Well, I was going to say Mick. Fast forward a little bit now. You know, take us kind of mid seventies. You move to LA, and you you know you start to record at Sound City, it's such a magical studio and uh, so many great records have been made there. So what do you remember about those times and how the band sort of changed at that point and, and, and the recording process at Sound City?
3: Well, I mean, the, that, hot, that even the mention of Sound City like is one of those things, a uh, you know, little element of like, what if, what if I'd won out and told Peter that, that Peter was no good, you know? <laughs> Had I not got in a car, I mean, the whole story is is beyond belief, really. Uh, Bob uh, Welch was still in Fleetwood Mac. We had a couple more, two or three weeks or something of that nature, left on the tour. And I had a short break, went home. I was living off Laurel Canyon on Fernwood. And, of course, uh, in Laurel Canyon, the the, the store is still there, the country store, which is a lot of 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 history. Probably, maybe touched on in that film. I'm not sure. Probably not. But uh, there's a whole doc- great documentary that's all all about that whole year. Sure, Joni Mitchell and so forth. So I'm I'm there just buying a sandwich you know, to take up the journey and the kids. Uh, left my old beat up Cadillac outside. Walked in and there was a, I'm forgetting his name. And I should I should know his name because it was so important, really. Uh, he was a sort of socialite chap that would go around he never he got you know, is he he never quite knew what he was up to obviously <laughs> leave the it
2: shifty that. characters right yeah,
3: I, no no I, I just but just always in the middle of stuff so he's probably up to Delivering things to people but, <laughs> could be shifty. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? But uh, everyone was happy to see him. <laughs> yeah, everyone was very happy to see him. And, and 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 he said, "Well, what are you up to?" And I said, "Well, I'm actually in town, looking, trying to cost out a studio because I was in charge of supposedly being the manager, as I did for years and years and years. Uh, so it was one of my duties. So and and he said, "Well, I coincidentally, I've just." started a job repping a studio called sound city i had no idea and it's just over in the valley so i said well, well let's go and take the stuff out of my car because i had a hook a soft top that never worked i shoved all the food in the back of his car left the car in the car park there and ended up going to the studio i met keith Olsen and showed me the studio and by pure coincidence just said, "Play Buckingham Nicks," which was Stevie and Lindsay's uh, album that I couldn't have heard more than maybe 10, 15 minutes of it fl- flicking through. He said, well, this is something I worked on in this studio. So we just played it just to demo the speakers, you know. And Did you immediately take to it? Apparently so. <laughs> 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 it is the, the adage is that i had to that had to have happened because i spent a little while there inadvertently uh i met Lindsay, said hello and he said oh they're rehearsing next door and bob was still in the band and and i thought this is a cool place and that was about it uh saw stevie uh through a thing and apparently waved to her and And she knew more about Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Lindsay knew a little bit and really liked uh, an album called *Then Play On. But all the stuff prior to that, uh, he was, was not privy to all the bluesy, extra focus bluesy type albums and stuff, which meant nothing one way or the other. I found all that out later. So I left and then Bob left. At very short notice, I sort of knew he was miserable and had some (laughs) private uh, matters to take care of. And and in in his world, he was making a run, which turned out well for him. I I helped manage him for years. And he became, Bob Welch, the solo artist, and actually had a lot of success. But it was a shock when he left, because we're about to go in the studio. Right, right. (laughs) like, whoa. (laughs) The music that I heard, had to have had a huge effect subliminally. It had to have. Because Mm -hmm. when Bob dropped the the bullet, the bomb, just like a channel came came back, I said, what was that music in my head? What was that music I heard? And I remember uh, focusing on, as I would always, guitar playing which, by the way, Stevie's never forgiven me for. <laughs> the for Lindsay, I would never have been in the band, But <clears throat> the, uh, which is sort of true at the beginning. And I phoned Keith uh, up at the studio, found him and said, what was that music you were playing? And he's, he gave more detail. It was an album, and they're working on another album now, and I don't quite know how that's going to turn out. And I said... I have a feeling that the, that the guitar player would, because would, Bob's left, would he, would he want to join Fleetwood Mac? So in that 20 minutes, which says a mega, mega dose of, of kudos to the music that, that Lindsay and Stevie made, made that amount of, of an impression that when I drew down on it and remembered it in short fashion, really, it had that amount where I was, I was said that the guy I heard playing is the, is the deal. And that's what led to, to them uh, joining Fleetwood Mac. So from, from the, the green grocer up the road in in Laurel Canyon and going down there, meeting the dude to Sound City and knowing what Sound City spawned, not only for us, but, uh, Everyone, Nirvana to everyone. Yeah, but that great documentary, uh, yeah. David Grohl. Dave Grohl did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I loved doing that, and uh, all the stories that came out of that place. But it it, it happened. The music spoke so so loudly, and then uh, I realized but very soon on. I realized, uh, and Lindsay said, "Well, I come with, I come with my partner." Right, right. And I, I soon realized that they wrote all the songs together. And, and I said, well, that's great. But that's, that's the story that Stevie always naggles me at. <laughs> so never, you guys
2: actually, yeah, actually end up recording yeah, that?
3: Never forgiven me that I was actually choosing a guitar player first. <laughs> she was in the afterthought. She yeah. Was
2: in, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've actually heard that because you had Christine in the band. You were sort of like, do we need another singer, right? At that point?
3: Well, the, we knew, and I knew when I really, really locked down and started. Remember, I hadn't sat and listened to the album until I got back to LA, but I'd already said, I, I, I really have a good feeling about it. And he said, Well, I probably, maybe, or whatever. And Lindsay, Lindsay did not want to do it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and he, they'd already started writing a lot of the songs uh, ended up on the first album they did with Fleetwood Mac. Crystal we redid, which came off actually the Buckingham Nick's album. So I was, I, I loved that so much. I asked them if we could repeat it, you know, it, that was the song that really brought them into Fleetwood Mac in many ways, I would imagine. Definitely. And, and it's still heartbreaking, you know, the, uh, the, the power of that song. And, so off we went, and Christine and John, uh, by that time I had a, a tape, you know, went down to Malibu where they were living at that point <clears throat> when they were married and said, This is what I'm suggesting should seriously be asked to join Fleetwood Mac, both Stevie and Lindsay. They loved the music. And the only comedic thing that Christine said, Well, just do me a favor, let me meet. Stevie, because there's nothing worse with two women that don't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> and initially,
2: after you guys recorded, you take the tapes. At that point, there were tapes, right, to the label, and you were like, "Hey, if you guys don't see what I see, just please let us go."
3: Right? Oh, that that was after we not finished. We were halfway through the album. Right, right. No, no, you're right. Yeah, I remember. I had a, a, went to Mo Austin who is still with us and, and was a huge advocate and supporter of Fleetwood Mac, always has been. I have nothing more than lovely memories of it. And so I was looking after the running of the band and I just, I don't know why I, I, I just knew it was so special what we were doing that I really, really, really wanted them. I had no rights at all. We were signed up and yeah. but I, I knew Mo well enough. I, I just said, please, if you don't hear what I'm hearing, then let us go. Let your people go. You know, yeah. I, had, <laughs> I, I had like three or four peppermint schnapps and brandies before I went in, and I sat down like a sort of naive little businessman and said, "Put the music on," and said, "I just know this is so special, that, and I know you well enough that if you don't hear what I'm hearing, could could I think about?" taking the band somewhere else. Of course, that didn't happen, thankfully. And and from that moment on, the relationship with, with Warner Brothers was always good. Mm. But more and more and more and more and more, they, they never questioned anything we did, ever. Mm. But, oh. Which happens a lot in your experience, when you get the, the dabbling A&R guys, and they're yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it just... It, they just they got that we needed to be left alone yeah and the magic started unfolding and you go like don't touch it <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't, yeah don't uh just uh, if, you know if Mick says the band's not going to break up I'm sure it's not. <laughs> well it's
2: an interesting conversation and Anthony I'm sure you guys talked about this in the book but some of the greatest music like capturing that lightning in a bottle is you know out of out of uh turmoil in a sense so do you feel like when you think about it later in life and you think about those records, like how do you feel about those albums? Obviously, Rumors was such an incredible success. And do you feel like some of the best music is made when there's that turmoil versus being really settled later in life? I'm sure you guys discussed this in, in length, right?
3: Well, uh, we all have those stories. I'm sure Anthony can speak to you know, turmoil and stuff when things maybe turned out really well when he's writing it. But I think it, I think there's a duality to it. And and then you get into the proverbial, uh, but the truth is, the the truth is, out of pain comes an escape into passion, and it, it just is a fact. Yeah. yeah. Can you? I, I remember uh, a lovely interview Bonnie Raitt did, and her life changed from from all. You know, there's no, no reveal from being very crazy and, 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 and very uh, out of control. And she has reference to that, but she also, you have those stories where it does, you know, you don't have to rely on things being crazy and, 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 and caustic and, and altered and all the other expressions you can think of. But the real truth is, I think a lot, a lot of the songwriting that, that, we now have, and we're not left with it, but we, because we're still around, but re- resonates from uh, things that weren't good. Mm. Uh, I think the chaos that ensued with Fleetwood Mac, which is uh, overcooked but true for the most part, I think kept the band going for, for, for a long time. Uh, sometimes I look back and go, like maybe it was you know, me, me and, and and not just me, but just all of us allowing it to be patched up, and and then we got used to being in in a place where there were just places you wouldn't go, especially with, with relationships.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. And then all this music—I mean, the making of rumors—is is that you had two major four four major people in a five-piece band that were broken up and then i'd broken up with my wife so all of us were miserable and yet this funny band once you decided not to walk away which was incredibly hard i'm sure for for chris stevie Lindsay, and john in many ways when i look back a little bit cavalier, you know. I, I, I'd be, hey, of course, we're, you know, everything's going to be fine, and and everyone didn't run for the hills. So out of that came all this uh, long-lasting music that has stood reasonably well, to, to say the least, against Definitely. the test of time. And it came out of chaos. So it's always hard to talk about it, but especially when you you look. Not if you'd ask me when I was twenty years old, I, I and I think, of, yeah, you know, we do this, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm the party animal, and I'm the. I go like <laughs> later on, it becomes a form of of resolved uh, opinion where the romance of all the damaging elements, not just the substance abuse, but just what you what you go through, you you actually are a little daunted by it, where you go, I can't over-romanticize those moments because right. mm-hmm. they then become attractive to someone who's maybe learning maybe not to do that.
2: Yeah.
3: So, so it, it becomes a conflict, but the real nuts and bolts, bolts of it, a lot of great stuff came out of that chaos. Uh, and it's it's a, an enduring story that I don't think will ever fade. Parts of it should fade because we, we weren't always miserable, you know. It's just not true.
2: So are they great memories for you or are they difficult memories for you? No, they're,
3: they're all great memories, you know, and, and the, the, they're also like you, can, <laughs> you, you also have the right to go like wow, we were lucky to get out of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Or,
3: or the fact that someone didn't walk away and say, I just can't take this anymore. I'm so yeah. unhappy. Definitely. You know, and, and everyone sacrificed, in a way, parts, major parts of their lives for the band known as Fleetwood Mac. There's no doubt in my mind that that, that was done, which meant the good and bad of it, the good part of it is the music itself literally kept the need and the want to continue something, which we did, you know, for many, many, many years. And we spoke about that, Anthony, in the book, about my, my adage is, I remember saying to Lindsay Buckingham once, I said, Fleetwood Mac is the most abused rock and roll fan- franchise in the world. <laughs> we, we never, I mean, we've all been hugely successful, don't get me wrong but in truth, which is actually a, a wonderful accident, we never really capitalized. We never thought about all the extra goodies and money that we could make, you know, with <laughs> <laughs> really getting into pre-selling who we Beating were. Breeds and whatever <clears throat> it may be, right? That was years and years later, but just yeah. the whole thing was very innocent really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I I like to think it was to do with the the, the luck of the draw that we handled exclusively our own affairs. We didn't have anyone widgy-widgees whispering until much later when everyone ended up getting their own managers. And then then it became uh, very different, really. Uh, Not bad, but just very different and harder to get things done because everyone was was part of this, uh, uh, you know, that we had all sold our souls to the company's store. You know? Right, right. It's uh, interesting,
2: Mick, a lot of drummers end up becoming managers. And I know you manage the band at a certain point because at the end of the day, like, you know, if you're not writing the songs all the time, you yeah. kind of want to make sure you're abuse, right? So there, there's so many great managers started as drummers. Did you like managing the band? Was that something you really ever aspired to do? Or you just kind of fell into it?
3: I think, no, 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 I just I just fell into it by the nature of being the fixer, I think. Right, you know? right. And, and also, you know, me and John often comedically say, well, what is this story? And I think there is some truth to it. Yeah. You know, the rhythm section inherently needs someone to play with.
2: Definitely.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but you might very well be a little bit more inclined to say, oh, oh we've got to keep this together. <clears throat>
2: So you're because you're always the driving force behind the band and you constantly have been. So fast forward to now. And uh, and by the way, the book is incredible. So if anyone hasn't picked up the book, I know this is years later, but make sure you pick up Play On. Um, but fast forward to now that, you know, the, the band has found new life in TikTok, Mick. And so this is pretty interesting. You even have your own TikTok now. Your pig is in the TikTok videos <laughs> uh, it's your life in Hawaii. Talk about what a new, because back in the day, it was the Clinton Foundation using Don't Stop. And, and now, you know, a, another life has been breathed into Fleetwood Mac because of TikTok. So talk about what that video did for the career of the band now and and all the, you know, the new audience that's now brought into learning about the band from that medium.
3: Well, well the nice thing about it, uh, which, by the way, was uh, the same thing with, with Don't Stop. It was an act, sort of an accident. The fact that we all, you know, uh, would have taken the journey to to, to vote for uh, the president at that point, but we 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 weren't out, you know, beating the streets with posters, and it was just they happened to play yeah. the the song, uh, their campaign manager, and they they actually hadn't asked, for, and I think they got in so deep and the song was. Took off and became our version back then of viral, right. uh, and uh, we just said it was our pleasure, you know. And Christine, of course, who wrote the song, but uh, and then that was that. And it became an iconic thing that w- was to this day. I mean, I, I was very flattered. I just turned seventy-four, and I'm I'm not actually on Maui. I'm in Molokai, uh, but I'm blessed to have got a, a new home there. And Carl phones me up. I'm getting a little bit off track, but just talking about remind reminded me of, of how how that triggered a whole monumental event for for President Clinton and, and proved God knows not to be the reason, but it was a huge part of that campaign as it turned out. Mm. It's fair to say, and a long-term funny uh, arm's length relationship uh, with the president, you know. And so I'm sitting in Molokai, which is literally in the middle of nowhere. And Carl, who basically is, is, a, is a ghost, why we're, we're talking together with Anthony, while we're talking about the book, all in truth was triggered by our relationship and friendship with, with Carl. So Carl phones me up and said... I've just, <clears throat> excuse me. I've just heard from the president's office that he wants to talk to you. And and I and, and he said, well, we, we checked out. It wasn't like a goof, you know. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> when he, you
2: get that phone call, you're like, me? Why is he going to? to
3: <clears throat> he established that it wasn't a goof. Right. And and so I'm I'm at, uh, unloading sheds or something. I said, well, I put my phone in the pocket. He said, well, you never know. It, it it might happen I said I said really and so I, I'm out there in my swimming trunks and, and, and very very together seemingly young chap I would imagine said uh, this is uh, this is the president's office and uh, the secret service and and are you mr. Fleetwood <laughs> so all these years later and I spent nearly an hour on the phone with the president I, a few days ago, and, wow. and guess what we spoke about. Of course, don't stop.
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs> and and I said, well, I. He said, I'm sitting in my office. I have an office in in Harlem, I believe, where he he, he hangs uh, his hat up. Yeah, but to work and then upstate New York. He said, so I'm sitting in my office, and I and I was looking at the wall, and there's a a nice drum skin with don't stop from from a present from me to him. And he said, you know what? I'm going to phone him. And then we got in this fantastic conversation about what what that song had done, yeah. how it triggered a whole lifetime. And then we got into just a whole load of lovely personal things. So those funny moments and, and TikTok was in its own way, uh, for sure different, but it wasn't expected. That's the point I'm making. Right, right. Wasn't, it wasn't planned out, and half our conversation has been about stuff that really wasn't planned out. Mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, right. it's one big accident,
2: <laughs> but like, like a lot of your career, right? The, I mean, it's so yeah. funny how things happen it, like that. It
3: was it was great, and uh, Dogface, uh, I I know him as the sweetest chap. Uh, changed his whole life, and I I said, of course I'll do it. You yeah, know, yeah. At that point. You know, it was just a fun thing to do. And th- then it got totally out of control. You know? <laughs> um, and, and the joke was, I was he was on a, a talk show in England. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be a, a surprise guest. You know, and he had no idea I was going to actually interrupt and say hello. Amazing. <clears throat> and I, I publicly confessed. I said, I said, Fleetwood Mac owes you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's great no question well let's talk a little bit about the Peter Green tribute uh, such an amazing concert There's so many great you know stars in that concert Kirk Hammett to Noel Gallagher to Steven Tyler one of my favorite people on the planet I know you guys are tight he's probably yeah. one of my favorite people literally on the planet um, so talk to me about the tribute what it what it means to you and uh, and obviously the, you know the CD and the LPs that just came out
3: well well uh- it's, it's really uh, the fact that everything was put on hold is, is so indicative of the world we've all been living in. And the miracle really, I, uh, and Anthony would note, the thought of, of doing something like this has been lo- longer lasting than I probably really realize. Yeah, I've um,
1: been planning this for quite a while in one way or another. I mean, when we were writing, we were talking about getting the records back out. <laughs> um, getting them to an audience and stuff. So yeah, this has been a long
3: time coming, so it's good stuff. Yeah. And, and, and the actual part of it, you can tell just in little minimal ways that, you know, we've talked about Peter, Peter Green is, um, is why this is so important to me was that the story of Fleetwood Matt, which we've been, uh, going through on and off on our talk here, but it became more, the longer the story continues, which it still continues, it seemed like the essence in the beginning might very well be watered down and somewhat forgotten. It just seems to make mathematical sense Mm. that that would be the case. And it would also be an understandable fact that a lot of people, uh, and it's not a problem, God knows. But a lot of people understandably look at Fleetwood Mac with a classic lineup with Stevie and Lindsay, John, Chris, and myself, because those that period was so monumental that it that became their understanding of of the beginning, really. And and this is before the before the beginning for a lot of people, which is what I used on the name of the concert in London, which is a song that, that Peter sang before, a heartbreaking song, actually. Uh, it just became more and more important to do it. And when, when it really came together, uh, I was doing this prior to the last Big Fleetwood Mac tour, and then that dropped. So I had to... Stopped even the idea of doing this so two years later when the last major tour was over not long before uh, the world changed I I managed to put this all together with BMG who the record company had been unbelievably unbelievably supportive of a quite obscure idea really but it, it was a heartfelt payback to to just some form of quiet education that I didn't start this band, Peter Green did. And people, I think, uh, could, um, you know, could forget that. Or not you know, more importantly, not even know about it. So it had the essence of that. And then the, the joy of seeing how many, you know, people came into this project so willingly was really a testament to the power of Peter's playing, you know? And, and that, that in itself was hugely gratifying. The concert was a huge success. Uh, luckily, we got everything on tape. The documentary is not finished yet, but the live show is, has been received really well. Uh, and it's it nearly didn't come out. In, mm. I had to put the rehearsals back four days Anthony, in London, the show wouldn't have happened because COVID hit.
0: Yeah, you
3: you left. Didn't you leave the morning of the lockdown or just before they closed? Pretty much. Three days later, I left, and, and the airport was completely chaotic. Everyone was panicked. It was, yeah, and then... So all of the momentum, all of, of of the the nurturing of this coming out, was put on hold. Like everyone else's lives, um, mm-hmm. came to a full stop, and we all then have eventually found different ways to express, different ways to commune, and and also somewhat being able to to at least see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, which is a little debatable for even now, but it is out, and it just, it survived against hopeless odds, really. That's I mean, so I feel very blessed, and it's not, I also want the whole thing uh, to, to resonate, that, it, that it's complete, and until the documentary Long Form comes out, which is all about Touching on what was you were mentioning, Anthony, what was going on in London, London and and the ambiance of that—that that is the full intention. And we're even going to expand some of that with, with in interview form. And and I'm really looking forward to that. And when and that's really really done a little ways down the, the road here, then this whole package, the whole thing, I feel. Uh, I feel that I've done what I set out to do, which is all about our conversation, all about a period of time when, you know, and there were other places, of course there were other places, but London and England lit up the world. And, and I think one of you touched on, we happen to be exponents of, of young kids playing blues music, but look what happened. Look, look what happened. Yeah with a lot of, of things that that do stand the test of time uh, the most major would you know be the beatles and the stones and 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 all these fantastic bands and eric that came out of uh, out of the blues world and 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 of course he never really left but cream and and sort of this esoteric different versions of expression that came from just even just us bunches, blues players, but that all of the whole thing that was a, was like a fantasy, the art. No it, question. It, it really was when people uh, talk about Paris in the 20s or something. Uh, and then then there are stories in San Francisco when you go like, what happened? Yeah. Tremendous. <laughs> and there are other places, but we, I can speak I wasn't there, but I was there when all of this happened. And I was just a funny little drummer that just that lucked into a whole uh, panacea of, of people sharing information, uh, wanting each other to do better, uh, a slight sense of competition. Uh, but it was all, you wanted people around you to know what you were doing and, and that in itself led to people sharing and and it it's still there you know I mean, question. it's still there that a, a lot of that you know of course it's 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 diminished but in some form but not there are so many people in our world everyone on this call that have you go well one thing leads to this and leads to that and then they go and they go back and it's a rep this is this package is somewhat of a retrospective but it's really about what even caused that in the first place you know which is something that came from america to these funny little english boys playing blues and then look at the people who played on this album incredible they, they all loved what peter and, and for sure the band was connected to and they have uh, this lovely respect which is such a great reminder to uh, sadly we lost peter uh a little while ago and he never never really well he he knew we were doing the concert but yeah it's sad when do you think the
2: documentary will come out nick
3: right i certainly hope within the next five months yeah and and it's just been hard to, to put it all together in terms of going and editing and doing all the stuff because of but now uh We've either found different ways of of circumventing that, uh, which we all have. Yeah, yeah. To get stuff done in a different way, but I mean, normally I'd have I'd have been on the road in Europe with this band, playing blues festivals. The album would have come out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> gone up to Australia, or you know, none of that, as of the moment, has happened. So. And preferably I would be sitting with all you guys in a
2: room together, not through zoom, you know? So (laughs) definitely. But I want to talk a present day too, before we let you go, I mean, Fleetwood Mac, uh, the new lineup, Neil Finn, Mike Campbell, talk a little bit about, you know, incredible players, crowded house, obviously Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, talk about like the current tour coming up. How do you feel about going back on the road? Will there be new, you know, Fleetwood Mac music and uh, what does the next year look like for you ahead?
3: Well, I'm happy to hear that there's another tour because <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. But uh, the, the intention had, again, had, had we not had this stop, uh, we, we had quiet intentions of, of doing some stadiums, but not a tour. We'd just come off like working for two years. Sure. What felt a long time anyhow. And then this all hit. So I don't really know, but I, I do know one thing. Uh, the last tour was, was a really happy tour, hugely successful, thank God. And everyone ended up with a smile on their face. <laughs> uh, and, and the band is still uh, sitting there waiting to decide what to do. I'm, I'm really not sure, but someone asked me not so long ago, what, what, what your real... If you had a magic wand... I would, I would want to heal everything before we actually walked away, you know. And I have been able to, to talk with Lindsay, not about joining Fleetwood Mac, but about talking about us when, you know, it was, it was a tough moment uh, for all, all the reasons that had happened were just basically uh, one where it, it, the, the real explanation is, because people just weren't happy, you know, uh, emotionally. And it just had had to come to that, that end where we could no longer do and um, uh, be in, in, in that situation. And I, if I had a magic wand, would, would want to sort of be able to do something I don't think is liable to happen, to, to be blunt. But I, I would love to think that all of those things, can, before we say goodbye which will happen you know although sometimes I wonder I mean every time the stones go out you think well <laughs> is that it?
2: Every tour is the final tour right? <laughs> uh,
3: uh, but I think years ago I think that they had a farewell and they never did it again but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Keith would, would ban the, the word never again but, but it's uh, I, I hope that that happens and and musically we're more than capable of it uh, and I, I live I live with the dream of, of at least suggesting that the, a lovely healing is possible and I mean with everyone you know no one needs to go because someone comes back
2: right right no question
3: you know. So that's just. Uh, but I, I'm happy to hear you thought we were going out of well. I,
2: you know, I, I imagine most tours will get rescheduled eventually, right? So I guess I'm being
3: optimistic. But uh,
2: do you see? Do you see a time and place where there'll be new fleet with Mac music?
3: Well, in the same way as I'm, just I don't think we we would bother doing nothing if we were able to to do it. But uh, I yeah, all under the heading of hope, hope, hope. Right. Right that happens, and and also being able to say that if it doesn't, you know, as my father uh, always used to say, one thing I can assure you, Mick, and he would be talking about something that that was tough in his life, but led to something, he would say, it was all worth a damn. (laughs) (laughs) And and the worth a damn is something that you touched on, what comes out of chaos and certainly pain and and happy, happy creative major, major moments that are all relatable and then you put that under a phrase, it's all been worth a damn <laughs> because to walk away and say that it wasn't means that what a failure that must have been and, and, and I don't feel that and I know that anyone in, in uh, the band that I've been in, Fleetwood Mac, I don't think would have one hesitation that it hadn't been worth a damn, you know, uh, especially in retrospect. Yeah. yeah,
2: such an incredible career, Anthony. You and I have to take a trip to Hawaii and go hang out with Mick and Tyler and all these <clears> guys, <throat> and that's that's something on the agenda for you and I one day, right?
1: Absolutely, I am in. That's yes. a wonderful. Mick's house is like it's a paradise. It's wonderful.
2: Definitely. Well, Mick, I so appreciate you coming on. It's been incredible. Anthony and I are great friends, so I'm glad we could all do this together. Check out obviously the Peter Green tribute, the documentary when it comes out, the tour when it's rescheduled one day, and uh, this has been <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm so happy to, and obviously the book. So don't forget to pick up. If you haven't, came out a few years ago, but sure for sure, pick up, play on, um, yes. and uh, and and what a pleasure. I appreciate both of you guys immensely. Oh, thanks, Scott. This is really uh, fun.
3: I have one more one more vision yeah it would be if it's not the tour it will be a, a tour like you know god forbid if i ever end up in a wheelchair but <laughs> completely speaking it's like i get wheeled out in a wheelchair and there's no one else on stage just
2: <laughs> it's a very spinal tap it could happen guess. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> well thank you guys again i hope to see you in person soon and uh i appreciate everything okay yeah. thanks Hi guys, thank Bye. you. Thank you.
3: You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips.
2: Well, that was fun. What a great conversation. Great guys. Anthony is a guy that I know for a while. He's been on the show before, never met Mick before, but he's an incredible guy. Such great stories. What can you say about one of the most successful bands in the history of music, Fleetwood Mac, a legend? Happy to have him here and stay tuned for more exciting shows. We have Danny clinch coming up and many other shows. So check it out soon. Uh, if you haven't already and make sure you tell a friend or tell a bunch of friends and we'll see you next time. Stay safe.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or Mc Crispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun.